0: And find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad, and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Intech. Today we're going to talk to Emily and Torgen, and we're going to talk about smart contracts and why we need to audit them. Are they really secure? Do they do what they're supposed to do? And of course, Emily and Torgin are based in Switzerland, and they work at their great company called Chain Security, which is a spin-off of PwC. So we're going to talk about how this relates to the traditional auditing as well. So welcome, Emily and Torgin. How are you today?
1: Good. Thank you for having us.
0: I'm doing great. Great stuff. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Emily? What's your background? How did you become an entrepreneur?
1: yeah so actually since i was a kid i wanted to be an entrepreneur and i fell in the blockchain soup in 2017 when i was finishing my master's in business and i wrote my thesis on the volatility of bitcoin and i started working in crypto right away first job out of college was in a crypto startup and yeah five years later still in the game after a very long crypto winter and now a new one yeah it's funny that after five years, I already feel a bit like an OG of the space. But now I've been with Chain Security for something like a year and a half, still when it was a PwC. And uh, yeah, loving this and loving what we bring to the space. Making the space secure for everybody, but not just people who are devs, who understand the code, but for also investors who just want this stamp of approval, this the security that a trusted company has looked into a project.
0: Then Torgen, how about yourself?
2: Yeah, I also hopped into the blockchain world around 2017. At first, just more of as a trader or investor, but then I was also always interested in the tech. And so while I was studying computer science at ETH Zurich, I became really interested in the different types of attacks that can happen when you have DeFi protocols that, that use smart contracts. And yeah, these attacks are like, they can be very significant. Like there's tens of millions of dollars that get lost like every month. And there's always something to learn from every single attack and you can hopefully then avoid it. And so basically I looked at one type of these attacks and wrote my bachelor's thesis about it and then also wrote a paper on that. And then after that, I came to chain security to work as a smart contract auditor.
0: Oh, wow. All right. Understood. So we got both academic grounding, the entrepreneurship, the vibe, everything in one company. But before we go further, let's level set. What is a smart contract? How does this differ from an escrow arrangement? Or if you plan an automation within finance function, sometimes maybe you are using macros in Excel or something like that. How does smart contract work?
1: In general, I love to define a smart contract as filling the functionality of notary, then a bank, an escrow account, judge, and then the kind of the executor of the contract. So if we take a simple example, let's say we make a bet on the weather. I say that tomorrow it's going to be nice weather. You say tomorrow is going to be bad weather. So where the smart contract is going to fill the role of a notary is that this bet is going to be you know, written the conditionality of this bet is going to be written in an immutable ledger in a blockchain so it's impossible afterwards to change unilaterally basically me saying oh actually no I, I said today tomorrow is going to be bad weather so that's what I said since the beginning no you cannot change that so that's the the notary saving the data saving the conditionality of the agreement in an immutable ledger then you have the idea of the escrow account, so like your bank, where you would deposit money for a big transaction, selling a house, something like that. Basically, you would deposit the crypto, let's say, in the smart contract to simplify it, simplify this idea. And the money, instead of being in your pocket or in my pocket, would be in this neutral ground. So you don't have to trust the other party to come up with the money later, to pay later. No, it is this money is already there. Uh, and ready to be sent according to the conditions that have been met or not. So in the case of our bets for the weather, let's say I bet one ETH, you know, so one the currency of Ethereum, I bet one ETH uh, that it's going to be nice weather, you bet one ETH is going to be bad weather, so we put two ETH there in this neutral ground, and then afterwards, we go to the next functionality of the smart contract, the kind of the judge. And this is a case where it's very interesting. And this is what Torgin wrote his paper about, and he can tell you more about it, is there There needs to be this decision. Okay, is the weather nice or not? And so this is where you're going to use an oracle. You're going to need a way that external information is fed into the smart contract without an intermediary to then trigger the condition. So this is this last stage, the kind of executor of the condition. So, for example, we could say, okay, we take a data source, SwissWeather.com is going to feed the information to the contract, and then automatically the money is going to be sent. So that's easy when you just look at the functionality, how this could work. And when you ask, how is it different from a simple escrow account? The fact is that all of that is automated and all these trust functions are automated, right? You don't need anymore the notary who comes in the middle and who says, okay, this is what the contract looks like. Now it can't be modified. You don't need a banker to take your money into neutral ground. You don't need a judge to decide it. And you don't need someone afterwards to execute it. So this is where it's interesting to use a smart contract instead of going through all these intermediaries, because this can be cheaper and automated in a trustworthy way. So that's how we explain it.
0: Smart contract audit sounds like the next level of difficulty in the blockchain game. So why do we need them? If you say that, look, this all feeds into this algorithm, and then it will be automatically paid. So why do we need to audit this?
1: Yeah, it's, How many people do you know who are like Torgin who can actually read the code of the smart contracts, who can actually understand it and who can understand where there is some funny business or not? And this is really where it's important to add it, not only for the security aspects, because, for example... So going back to that weather example, what if the smart contract is poorly developed and actually you wanted the contract to say if the weather is nice, then X is paid. But instead, if the weather is nice, then all the money goes to a random hacker. (laughs) That's not what you want. So this is one thing that we check as auditors. We verify that there are no mistakes in the code of the smart contract that is going to be detrimental to the parties. But also we check And we confirm that the smart contract does what it's supposed to do. Because another case you could have is the person who develops the smart contract. Actually, they make it that whatever the weather tomorrow, whatever the conditions that are reached, actually all the money is going to go to the developer. And as soon as you send your ETH to the smart contract, place that bet, it goes right away to the developer, and you never see that money again. So, this is something as a smart contract auditor we're going to confirm okay, the code does indeed what it's supposed to do. And I think that's very important for investors who are going to put their money in decentralized finance applications, potentially very big amounts. Huh? There are billions of value locked uh, in those smart contracts in big DeFi applications, and it's important that investors who are not able to read the code are able to trust that the smart contracts are going to do what they're supposed to.
0: So, Torgan, so what sort of blockchain protocols do you specialize in? Or is this Ethereum or something else? How do you actually check what Emily was saying that the code does what it's supposed to do?
2: Yeah. So, yeah, we do mostly our EVM code is the specific designation, which is like basically the code that runs on Ethereum, but it could also run on other similar blockchains. And... <clears throat> Yeah, basically, we just go through the actual source code of the contract. Like a smart contract is really just a computer program at the end of the day. And we try to understand every single line of code and make sure that it matches the specification. And the specification is basically where the developer wrote down what the code is supposed to do. And here we do check for the things that Emily mentioned that like the developer is an evil But I would say that's actually not even the main thing. Most of the time, the developer has good intentions for his own project, but he can still make mistakes. And I think that's like where the biggest value comes in, is that we help the developer ensure that he actually wrote the code the way that he intended to, and that he didn't make any mistakes. Because it's... Sometimes the code can be very complex. There are huge decentralized finance systems that are built where you can have any type of financial transactions. You can make trades between different assets, or you can even lend or borrow assets. And here, those are really complex systems. And you have to understand every single part. And if there's just one small mistake somewhere, it can have huge impacts. And so basically, like we specialize in understanding the system very well. And making sure that there's none of these unintentional bugs left in the code at the end.
0: And how do you do it? Do you do it manually or with the help of some algorithms? How does that work?
2: Yeah, so the, most of it is manual. Just actually going through the entire code base and understanding everything. We do also use some static analysis tools, which can help us uh, help point out some common mistakes that get made often. but a lot of the time it's actually just like business logic mistakes and those things are very difficult to check for automatically because you don't have a formal model of what the logic is supposed to do in the first place so yeah most of it is actual uh, manual code review work
0: all right and uh, do you also get like a mirror contract or not just like in the good old days you could look at the contracts Are you're buying a company, there is some formula there. And then, of course, you can mirror this in Excel and model it and check whether it's written the right way, the way people understood it, they agreed to it and they put it in a contract and it works the same way financially as well. It sounds like you don't get the description or the contract, what, what the intention should have been, just the code?
2: Yeah, we get the specification, which is like what okay. the developer intends. And then we get the code, which is what's actually going to be executed on the blockchain. So that is like the final thing that matters. If the specification is different than the code, then only the code matters because that's what's going to end up on the blockchain and what's going to be enforced by the blockchain rules as well.
0: All right. And maybe one other thing about this is, of course, we are in the early stages, but some of the protocols, they try to say that, look, you don't need to always start from scratch. So we have certain apps that you can put together like modules. Is there anything like that appearing already in the smart contract space? For example, that there would be an app which is used for a straightforward equivalent of, let's say, trade finance smart contract application or something like this, or not yet. And everything is custom made and you just you need to check it from scratch each and every time.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of standardized stuff. You see also a lot of projects forking each other. So copying a part of the code, because the code is all open source, which is great for innovation. You can take something a project already did successfully, but then you think you want to add a new functionality, make something more efficient and so on. So you just have to copy this code. If you want, you can mimic it completely. But for example, Uniswap, SushiSwap, but you can tweak it a little bit. And this is also one thing I'd like to mention, again, Torgin's paper, because the academic paper that he mentioned, he got a lot of praise for this. And it's pretty interesting to see the different connections between different protocols. And if you have really a financial audience, I think this it would, could be very interesting if Torgin tells us a bit about that.
0: Yeah, of course. Go ahead. And also, we can put the link to the show notes.
2: Yeah. So basically, the paper that I wrote was about Oracle manipulation. Which, as Emily mentioned earlier, like the goal of an oracle is to bring some outside information onto the blockchain. And specifically, I was looking at price oracles. So this is something that tells you the price of an asset, like for example, Ether. So an Ether could be worth like twelve hundred dollars today, and then two thousand dollars tomorrow. You never know. Like it's very volatile. So you need some some mechanism to always bring yourself the newest price and then you can use that for example in a lending application so there are these on-chain lending markets compound would be one example of that where you can put in an asset um, such as for example one ether and then you can borrow a different asset so you could borrow usdc for example which is a stable coin which is always worth one dollar but in order to know how much you can borrow you also need to know what the thing that you're putting down as a collateral, which would be the ETH in this case, is worth. So if an ETH is worth one thousand two hundred dollars, then maybe the lending market would let me allow would let me borrow a thousand dollars worth of USDC. So that my collateral is always more than what I borrowed.
1: Is it it like a pawn shop where if you want to get some money, you deposit, for example, your ring or something, and then you get some dollars (laughs) until you return those dollars and you can get the ring back? It's kind of like that?
2: Yeah, I would say that's probably a good analogy. The big difference here is that your collateral can potentially be pretty volatile. So like your ring is probably worth the same next week as it is today, but the Ether price can change a lot in that time. And so that's why it's very important to have an up-to-date Price Oracle. And one way that you can do this is you take an on-chain market. One example of that is Uniswap, which is a smart contract on Ethereum, where you can swap tokens against each other at the market price. And so basically, you can just look at that market price as it is currently and say, okay, that's the value of the collateral. And so the paper that I wrote was about this Uniswap oracle. And how you could manipulate it. For example, if you just double the price of Ethereum on Uniswap, then all of a sudden you would be allowed to borrow twice as much money against your E in the lending market. But that's, of course, not the real price. So you could potentially borrow more than what your collateral is worth and then just never pay it back.
0: All right, so sounds like there could be quite some issues with smart contracts, right? Which is a great opportunity for audit firms. And you are a PwC spin-off. So, do you think that the audit firms will also venture into auditing smart contracts at some point or in the near future?
1: Yeah, I think we we were an example of it. (laughs) But the thing is that it's actually quite different, right? The financial audit space, so in which the big fours like PwC, Deloitte, and so on, are operating, this space is is highly regulated. And it's normal because it's connected to regulated securities, of course. The thing is that in decentralized finance, we're moving away from that model. If you would have a regular company like LLC with shareholders and so on. Uh, and decision-maker, CEO, instead in the blockchain space, in the decentralized finance space, those lending protocols, for example, they are organized in the form of a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. And so the decision-making organs, they're actually on-chain through token holders. So basically, the you have people who hold You could say it's like a share, but not really, because it's a bit different. And they hold this, and through these tokens or share, they have voting power, and they can influence the strategic path of not the company, but the DAO. And so this is super interesting, an experimental model of governing people throughout the world who can work together without trust. So that's amazing. But it doesn't fit too well in the more traditional regulated financial industry, because how do you trace the people who do that? How do you trace the funds? How do you even actually determine which jurisdiction (laughs) is the DAO in? Because it's on the internet, right? Is it where the majority of the token holders are? But those token holders can change from one day to the other. Is it where the founders are? Maybe the founders are decentralized. So this makes it very challenging to regulate and to work with as an entity that is working with regulators a lot. So, this is where it's a bit tricky for financial auditors to move in the space. Now, definitely, I think there are paths of collaboration, and there are already some regulators who are regulating DAOs, where it's an association fetière in French, so association by the fact that it's there. And so, this is starting to happen. But until we have clear regulations on what are those, how are they regulated? I think it's going to be difficult for big four companies to go in there.
0: Okay, maybe first baby steps, but ideally at some point it works. So understood. Now, who are your key clients though, right? Because you said that this is an unregulated industry. A lot of people believe in decentralization. That's true, but they also have a lack of knowledge in terms of recognizing whether there are mistakes in the code and things like this. So who are your key clients?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. There's just one, one thing. So when you say there is no regulation and people believe in, in decentralization, I think it's very interesting to also take note that there are different types of regulations. So you could have regulations. Sure, I simplified your,
0: it, of course, especially yeah, in Switzerland. Yeah. There is some framework already.
1: But in the sense that there there are regulations from governments, from the legislators, but you can also have different kind. When you look at the laws of nature, this is a type of regulation, you could say. And in decentralized organizations, you also have some forms of regulations and you also have some forms of people voting and deciding the regulations of their DAO. And then those regulations are actually on-chain and it's a different type of regulation. So people call it <laughs> ex ante versus ex post regulation. Morgan is actually a very involved DAO member. So maybe he can also tell us more on the less theoretical level where it's at.
2: Yeah, I think it's very interesting how like some of the rules that are actually encoded in the smart contracts, those are just unbreakable, right? As Emily said, like they're actually enforced automatically. By the smart contracts and then there's also a social layer to it which i would say is like very similar to um, to other forms of organizing people so i would say there's like a big difference between those two the rules that are enforced by smart contracts are 100 percent enforced automatically and that's something that's only possible on the blockchain without needing any regulatory oversight for example because the code just executes exactly in the way that it's written And there's no way to change uh, or no way to avoid that unless you specifically write a function that does that. And then there's the social layer where this token voting governance and so on happens where you still have to coordinate people. And I would say that's not very different than in the traditional world.
0: All right. So coming back to my original question, who are your key clients?
1: Yeah, we do work with a lot of DAOs, for example, MakerDAO, Compound, curve, urine. So we work with basically the kind of, we call them the blue chip DeFi protocols. So it's the DeFi, uh, so the decentralized finance applications who've been there for a while and who are handling billions of value locked, as we call it, billions of dollars of value locked in their smart contracts. So we focus more on kind of high value work because we have a team that's extremely specialized and coming from Swiss universities, which still have a wide appeal globally. And yeah, we work with these or with kind of newer projects, but who are very promising, who are funded by top VCs like Andres and Horowitz and so on. And so that's our target audience. And we also work a little bit with bigger legacy organizations, big companies. We worked with some central banks as well, but it's a different scope, right? Instead of auditing smart contracts, there is more, we share our learnings because it's been an experiment, the decentralized finance, which has been running for a few years. We have five years experience in the space. And as we're talking about CBDC, central bank digital currencies developing in the future, there, there is a lot that we can share with these actors who are considering uh, these technologies. So we also kind of support in that sense, this kind of decision-making process
0: right so mainly it's dao's and their investors then some traditional incumbent players as well now you said that okay you're checking this you're using technology you've got smart engineers you've got a great team i just would like to ask similarly if i were looking at it as a potential client of an audit firm how do you deal with potential liability you told me that this works and then there is a huge blow up and it didn't work. I call you up and say, you owe me, I don't know how many ethers. Uh, what are you going to say?
1: <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately, we're not perfect. So in case we make a mistake, we're not able to cover billions that are in those protocols. So we what we offer is our processes, which have been battle tested for years and very strong quality assurance processes, the expertise of our engineers for a certain time on the code and so that's what we offer and there are a lot of auditors who have been I mean projects have been audited by different auditors and then there have been hacks and you can actually see online there's a leaderboard of the biggest hacks in decentralized finance and next to it you have the name of the auditor (laughs) who edited those contracts thank god I knock on wood we are not on that ranking (laughs) and I hope we stay away from it but this is something that happens to a lot of auditors and it's bound to happen because the projects are becoming increasingly complex. They all interact with each other. Yeah. And the best we can do, if it were to happen to us one day, again, knock on wood, it never happened. We would basically try to do damage control and help the project as quickly as possible, pause the smart contracts, verify how we can stop the issues, how to recover the funds, and help in the communication with the community. So I think this is what we could offer. But unfortunately, no, no liability, nor insurance.
0: All right. Understood. So linked to this, though, is how do you make money?
1: Yes. So it's a service. We are a service company. It's a fee, for example, for a longer audit. We're going to spend more time on it. And therefore, we're going to charge more for something that, that takes more time. So it's not re- connected to the risk. It's really connected to how long it takes, which is directly influenced by how complex a project is and how big it
0: is. And uh, you're based in Zurich. And so how many people are in your team at Chain Security now?
1: Now we're approximately 20. And when we spun off from a year and a half ago, we were approximately seven. So we tripled in size uh, in a year and a half. <laughs> I'm pretty pretty happy about that.
0: All right. So that's brilliant. Now let's also talk about what's ahead of you, right? Because recently there was an Ethereum merge. I guess that's a potential opportunity for you to scale up even more, right?
1: For now we want to consolidate because we've seen a lot of crypto companies who grew a lot and then when the bear market comes they have to fire half the staff and this is really not something we want to do and also that you know the culture is diluted and especially for auditors the auditing firms that we see on this leaderboard of, of hacks These are auditors who grew too fast. And this is really something we want to avoid. So now we're consolidating, making sure that our culture stays the same, that our quality stays the same. And that's really our goal for now. And soon we're going to, maybe in a year or so, we're going to start continuing aggressive growth. But yeah, with the Ethereum merge, maybe I can let Turgin explain a bit how it's going to change technically the security of smart contracts.
2: Yeah, sure. So yeah, the Ethereum merge happened last week, which was probably the biggest event in the blockchain space of the last couple of years, which was where the Ethereum network changed from the proof of work consensus model to proof of stake. And so proof of work is where the famous crypto mining was used to secure the blockchain. And this is a process that basically just burns a lot of energy as a proof of security of the blockchain and now they've changed on ethereum which is the second largest blockchain after bitcoin to the proof of stake consensus mechanism which works dif- differently where you stake as the word says your ether token, and basically give those as security that you will be validating and building blocks on the blockchain correctly and here instead of burning energy to prove that you're invested You have these tokens that you've staked and they could be taken away from you if you do something that is against the rules of the blockchain. So basically the idea is that it has similar security guarantees as proof of work, but it uses way less energy, 99.999% less energy. And it does have some implications on smart contract security. There are like some weird scenarios that can come up where it matters which consensus algorithm you're using. But for most of it, everything stays the same on the smart contract layer. And yeah, it's basically, you can get the same awesome functionality that you had before of decentralized execution of smart contracts, but now with a lot less energy consumption, which a lot of people are very excited about.
0: Right. Maybe one practical question though, if you compare it to living in the PC world, And sometimes you have backwards compatibility, sometimes you don't. So if I have a smart contract, which was done on the original Ethereum, is it going to work on that merged one as well?
2: Yeah, all of the functionality works exactly the same way. So basically every smart contract works the same. There are some like niche assumptions that break. For example, if you assume that the blocks are produced at random intervals, which was the case before. It was always every 12 seconds on average, but it could be like after one second or it could be after 20 seconds. It was a distribution of how long the block times were. And now the blocks happen exactly every 12 seconds. So if that is a breaking assumption in your code, then it would break. But all of the logic and everything executes exactly the same way. So for the huge majority of smart contracts, they should not break due to this update
0: okay and as a user i don't need to do anything
2: no as a user you don't notice anything everything is the same the user experience is the same you don't really need to care but you can just know that in the background a huge update happened that had been like in the works for seven years and finally it got delivered and worked as expected and so now in the background it works very differently but for the user it's still the same
0: all right that's brilliant that's what technology people always say to business people
1: I think a big difference also as a user is that next time your friends tell you that they don't like crypto because it uses a lot of energy, you can say, aha, not anymore.
0: Is there any further reading that you could recommend apart from your paper, of course, because sometimes people say if you want to read up on or learn about blockchain or smart contracts, everything is outdated by the time it gets printed. So I get my uh, information from other channels. So is there anything where people can just on their own? Uh, learn a bit more whether that's a book or it's a youtube channel or or a twitter account that you follow that is useful
1: for me being non-technical i like the defiant so it's a newsletter that is specifically around defi decentralized finance and it's it's not really they have a few guides but it's also the news of the week so i think that's pretty interesting and that's pretty accessible for people who are not technical but for technical things i don't know (laughs) maybe
2: Yeah, so my favorite person to introduce people to blockchain has always been Andreas Antonopoulos. He's like a very OG Bitcoin guy. He's been talking about Bitcoin since, I don't know, 2010 or something, when nobody even knew that it existed. And he's very good at breaking down very difficult contexts, very difficult things in ways that are easy to understand. And so I would recommend his YouTube channel. He has like a million videos, but there are some that are like specifically introductory. So I would say those are probably a great place to start. And then he's also written two books called Mastering Bitcoin and Mastering Ethereum. If you really want to go like deep into the details, then those are great, but they're probably not good as like a casual read.
0: I get it. All right. For
1: people who speak French, I have a great book to recommend by this author called Emilie Raffaud. <laughs> the book is called Le Futur des Espèces. <laughs> so it's an introduction on crypto, on blockchain, on Ethereum, on Bitcoin. I explained the merge because, like Torgin said, we've been knowing for seven years that it's going to happen. So I explained that already in there. And also the economic governance revolutions that the, these, uh, this crypto can bring. Yeah. <laughs> that could be a good resource as well.
0: Of course. So that's what I was waiting for. But anyway, we got there. Great stuff. So where could people find out more about you, get in touch with you? What's the best way to reach out?
1: Yeah, our website, chainsecurity.com has everything. You can see more about what we do. There's a big button, contact us, which goes straight to me. So yeah, they can easily reach out through there. Happy to, to read you guys' opinion, to, read you, to answer your questions or to introduce you to, to the relevant people.
0: All right. Brilliant. So thank you so much, Emily and Torkin, and good luck to you and chain security.
1: Thank you so much. much. What a great time. (laughs) Looking forward to the next one.
0: Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at voiceofintech.com. Happy to hear from you. Thank you.